We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 14th, 2017, the Devil and Mr. Jones edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C., the Slate studio therein. I'm alone. We were together last week, which means we must be flung apart this week. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello. Where are you? I'm in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, hello. John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation. Where are you? I'm far flung. I'm in New York City. Hello. Flung. Flung and flung. Flang and flung. On this week's GabFest, the extraordinary defeat of cartoon villain Roy Moore in the special Senate election in Alabama and what that means for the 2018 election and for President Trump. Then the absurd Republican tax bill is sprinting toward passage. Is there any chance a handful of senators will waver and quaver and decide to kibosh it? Then another week, another round of awful harassing men, sexually misconducting themselves men, have been exposed. And this was also the week when the accusations, the many, many accusations against President Trump for his sexual misconduct reemerged and were discussed. We will discuss that and where where the Me Too movement is going. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Doug Jones, prosecutor of the Ku Klux Klan, upstanding citizen, defeated a pedophile creep who believes Muslims shouldn't be allowed to serve in Congress 
averred that homosexuality should be a crime, was twice removed from judicial office for violating federal orders. This kind of result should not be a surprise, but of course it was a monumental surprise. Republicans who could have won the Alabama Senate race had they run a bag of wet spinach. Had they run Roy Moore's horse, they probably could have gotten 85% of the vote. They found literally the only Republican in the state of Alabama who could lose a Senate seat. They ran him, dragged the president along for the ride. John, I was surprised. Were you? Well, first of all, they didn't exactly drag the president along for the ride. The president. I know. What was up with that line? We have a full-throated endorsement of Moore, and more to the point, endorsed uh, a kind of the entire Moore uh, response to these sexual assault allegations, which uh, Republicans like Mitch McConnell, Mike Lee, Cory Gardner, who runs the Senatorial Campaign Committee for Republicans, all of whom found the accusers more credible than Roy Moore, which means they all believed that he was... Uh, a, a, an assaulter of a 14-year-old girl. So the president didn't just sign on to uh, a candidacy. He signed on to a moral position on something that made people um, uh, absolutely repulsed. So um, I was uh, I was surprised, but not um, floored. Now, obviously, a year ago, if you'd said a Democrat was going to win in Alabama, you would have been floored. But I think it, at the end here... Um, the, the I felt like it could go either way. Still, very surprising, just because um, in this moment of tribalism, um, and based on all the the reporting we'd seen out of Alabama in the strength of Moore's um, base, my ignorance, but also it's an open question about how it's always an open question about how to whether the Democratic base can be motivated. What motivates the Democratic base? Is it successful? That's always kind of a more of an open question than the Republican base. So that that's why it was a uh, an open question uh, for me going into the election. Emily, seventy percent of white Alabama voters who voted voted for the pedophile. Ninety one percent of Republicans who voted in that election voted for the pedophile. Should we be proud of America, or should we merely be slightly relieved at the absolute worst outcome? was avoided and that national embarrassment was avoided? Uh, Well, we should be glad that national embarrassment was avoided. Really important to say that the African-American vote was over 90% for Doug Jones. African-American women, I believe, were at like 98% and turnout was high. And that was especially noteworthy given the various barriers to voting in Alabama. And there's a lawsuit going on right now about the state's voter ID law. And some of the state legislators who backed it were very clear that they were imposing voter ID in order to affect what they called the black power structure in Alabama. In other words, they were trying to make it harder for black people to vote. Um, And in fact, black people are disproportionately affected by this voter ID law. There's a trial about it in February. And obviously, Alabama has a long history of um, putting up barriers to vote based on race. And yet it is also the site of the Supreme Court decision in Shelby County. Shelby County, Alabama, in which the Supreme Court said that the Justice Department should no longer have a role in 
pre-approving changes that states make to the voting process. You know, one of the big problems was that the DMV centers in uh, majority black, or I think 75 percent black counties were closing down. These are the places where you go to get your identification so that you can vote. Anyway, uh, it seems really important that black turnout was high despite all of that. I was really interested in the gender breakdown. I was surprised at how many women voted for Roy Moore, white women. I probably shouldn't be. I think the um, it was like 63%, so lower than the white male vote for Roy Moore, but not really that different. And interestingly, younger voters were much more likely to break for Jones than Moore. So that says something about the Republican coalition going forward, right? And this question of whether um, the Republicans are dominant among groups that are just declining as a share of the population, i.e. old people and white people. Well, the younger voter in particular, because it matches up with what happened in uh in Virginia, in Alabama, the under 45 vote went to Jones 6138 in Virginia for um, in the governor's race there. The it was 6434. So um the problem for it's, you know, it's not just turnout and, and you know, well done with the ground game for Democrats. But if you're not building support in the next generation as a party, that's a big problem. John, do you think this is a bullet dodged for the Republicans because they don't now have to endure serving alongside Roy Moore, having him appear in every campaign ad in 2018? Mm-hmm. Or do you think they'll still end up having to be yoked to him and that he will be a talking mm-hmm. point for for campaigns in 2018 and 2020? I think it's a grazing. I don't think it's fully dodged. I mean, yes, they don't have to manage it in the in the Senate. And yes, the question of whether the accuser should be believed in Roy Moore's case had, of course, a splashback effect on, on President Trump. Because if your behavior many years ago and credible accusers, I mean, we should note that while the accusations are more severe in the Moore case, there are more people accusing the president and of more recent vintage than in the case of Roy Moore. And so if the senators in the Republican Party thought it was germane to talk about these fewer number of accusers, then why isn't it germane to talk about the the larger number of accusers? Uh, If the president's argument is, well, people knew about the accusers before the election and they voted for him anyway, then why wouldn't that logic have held if Roy Moore had been elected? So all of those questions are are not in the forefront the way they would have been if he'd been elected. But the fact that the Republican National Committee had to choose to support Moore when the head of the Republican Senatorial Committee said he believed that Moore had assaulted a 14-year-old is not a good place to be. It's one thing for Donald Trump to have his views on things. He's got his own political uh, weather that he makes. But the Republican National Committee, the institution that is the the head of the Republican Party supporting Roy Moore is a is a thing from which it can't necessarily get out from under. And and that doesn't mean it's going to be brought up every day. But that's a crack. That's a that's not just a you're signing up here, not just to support a candidate, but you're you're making a moral stance. And so that, I think, has some lasting um, um, issues. And the real question now, it seems to me, for the Republicans is what are they going to do in primary races in Nevada and Arizona, where you do have these competitions between just to use these uh, sloppy terms, more establishment type of Republicans versus more kind of nationalist Bannon-esque type Republicans. Um, And this is a lesson the Republicans have have learned in 2006, 8, 10, 14, that when they nominate candidates who are loved by the primary electorate, they then lose in the general election. 
one of the things that we've seen that's so extraordinary is not simply that uh, more demoralized Republican voters who didn't want to vote for a pedophile, but also there is this incredible energy on the left that is very reminiscent of what there was on the right in 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party. I saw, I didn't follow this tweet up, but I saw someone tweet that on the same night that Moore lost, the Democrats lost a state Senate seat in Iowa, but the candidate ran 30 points ahead of where Hillary Clinton had run. And so that even even in races where Democrats have absolutely no right to be competitive, they are just so incredibly galvanized. So what does that say for for the Trump methodology, which is just the base, just the base, just the base? Well, I think it says that if Democratic turnout is high in 2018, that the Trump base strategy is going to fail. And if that happens, that will overturn a lot of political assumptions, right? Because the Democrats always have trouble turning out their voters and their base in midterm elections. If Democrats are so angry this year and so determined to reject President Trump and see 2018 as their referendum for doing that, their numbers are higher. You know, and when you look at people who don't normally vote at all, they also tend to skew a little bit toward moderate and liberal positions. Um, And then when you factor in also this tax bill, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is deeply unpopular, you can see a real, like, possibility for a broad coalition. And we should note, back to sort of voting rights questions, that the Democrats are going to need that kind of momentum behind them in order to do something like take over the House or or even the Senate, given all the barriers right. to voter voting and the polarization and gerrymandering. Right. So they need to run, you have to think. Sorry. Yeah. They need, I think they need to run plus eight to take the House as they are the estimates, which is crazy. Yeah, exactly. Plus seven or eight. So you have you. Right. So that's like the handicap they start with. And that means that it's crazy that it's in reach. And yet in the wake of this Alabama election, suddenly I was seeing people, you know, pollsters saying things like, well, to- Senate is a toss up in 2018. John, what do you think about all this? Well, I think we're a, lo- we're a long way off. But one thing that is um, that does seem to be clear from this race and from Virginia is the motivating factor for the Democratic Party is the person in the Oval Office. Obviously, Moore was a special case, but um, the president was contributory here as well. It's obviously always hard for presidents in the first election after their uh, first term starts. But this one is particularly difficult because it's an identity question for particularly a lot of minorities. They feel a particular threat from the way the president was elected, what he did to uh, President Obama and um, by being essentially America's number one birther. And that makes the motivation a value motivation. In other words, it's not about policy. It's about who you are. And that obviously in in these races has turned out to be powerful enough to get people to turn out to vote. And so that's unlikely to go away as the president is running a presidency that directly challenges those voters on a pretty regular basis. Emily, I want to close this discussion and hopefully talk of Roy Moore for the last time in my life. Hey, he hasn't even conceded yet, David. There's going to be a recount. Don't give up. More, more. With this amazing data and then and the question coming out of it. So Evangelical women voted 75% for more non-evangelical women voters in Alabama voted 75% for Jones. And one reason for this extraordinary divide is a sign of the way in which 
the cultural signaling, cultural issue signaling have become so important. And in particular, the way abortion and life issues have become an organizing principle for many voters on the right. Less so, still very important for voters on the left, but I think incredibly important for voters on the right. Is there any argument, any reasonable argument that the left should, for strategic reasons, just try to lose Roe? That Roe should go and because abortion rights are already so hard to to gain in in a lot of conservative states anyway. So so the access to abortion, many women would be hurt if Roe goes. It would be very bad in a lot of a lot of red states. But that the political gain and the counter response that you would get on the left, and the way in which you would quiet some of the the cultural uh, warriors on the right, would be worth it for the left. So if I was going back to the early 1970s when abortion was kind of quietly on the march in the sense that more and more states were legalizing it, I might choose that path. I would definitely be really interested to see where it goes, whether there's an America in which it's not abortion that is this fundamental divide and people find other ways to organize their political and cultural beliefs. At this point, the idea that we could... um, you know, heal this breach by overturning Roe and going back to state laws, I guess I just really doubt it. I feel like the kind of team thinking and the idea that we're divided by these basic values is too entrenched. But it is true. Sorry, just to interrupt, just to interrupt on that. I'm not saying I think the team thinking would, would, would remain. It's just that now the team on the left would be the one that would be galvanized and the team on the right would be more quiescent because they would have had their win. Yeah, maybe. I mean, right. I do think there's this way in which uh, Roe is part of why the Supreme Court in particular works better always as an issue for conservatives. Right. But what you're imagining is a world in which we go to state by state regulation and then certainly you would diminish access for women. It's not good in some red states right now, but there is still an abortion clinic in each state in at least one city. And we would have states without clinics and we would have big parts of the country. You know, it's whenever I start thinking about this, I wish the country were smaller, because if you were just talking about relatively small geographic distances, you could imagine busing women and girls who need abortions to different states without enormous trouble. But that's not the country we live in. So whenever we go down this road, I start imagining women being forced to have babies they don't want to have. And that makes me upset and nervous. But I do think there is a question about the politics of this and just how corrosive and bad they are for the country and whether there is some way out of them. But what I tend to be drawn to are the idea of um, restriction on second trimester abortions in states where voters really object as opposed to first trimester restrictions. But then the other thing, sorry, I'm like going back and forth, but I always feel like these questions of compromise don't really solve the problem. And at the end, there is this kind of potential but unlikely kind of mirage-like political gain and a lot of practical suffering that would um, that would happen. That's well put. Mirage-like political gain v. actual suffering. All right. We'll leave it there. We have a Slate Plus segment for our Slate Plus members. Thank you for being Slate Plus members. On Slate Plus today, Emily will tell us about the surprising news that two 
Trump judicial nominees are being pulled because of recently discovered vile statements that they had made. If you want to hear that extra segment or other extra segments on lots of Slate podcasts, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up for Slate Plus. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Congressional Republicans announced Wednesday that they have agreed on a final merged tax bill. They are working to merge this tax bill in a rush for two reasons. First, they are reluctant to expose the bill much to the light of day because the more the public sees of it, the less the public likes it. And second, Doug Jones's victory means that the Republicans' margin for passing the bill in the Senate is effectively down to zero, down to one maybe. And so they're trying to jam it through before Jones is seated and before several, one or more Republican senators has doubts or, or turns on the bill. So, John, what are the key elements of the unified bill that you've been able to hear? Well, about they dropped the highest marginal tax rate down to 37. It's currently at 39.6. The corporate tax rate is being dropped from 35% to 21%. And that's, uh, of course, uh, it was um, going to be at 20%. The state and local taxes uh, deductibility is at $10,000. I believe the case is that you can deduct, you, and I don't just believe that this is in that, that, that you can either deduct 10000 in state and local taxes or in property taxes. Previous versions of the bill had either scrapped the state and local but capped property at 10. Now you can basically choose between the two. There are deductions for medical expenses and graduate student tuition and the individual mandate is gone. Those are gone. Um, Those are wait, I, th- sorry John, is the is the graduate school tuition that's gone no, or that's No, they're back? keeping the deductions. You can, you can for still deduct. Two, is my understanding. They're, they're keeping it. Okay. Okay. But Good. universities still have to pay taxes on their endowments, I believe. Um the uh, insurance, the individual insurance mandate is gone. Uh, the most striking thing to me, and I just do not get the politics of this, um, dropping the top rate from 39.6 to 7. I mean, sorry. Yeah, 39.6 to 37. I mean, they obviously Republicans have felt nervous about the charge that this is a giveaway to the wealthy at the expense of all that could be done for the middle class and the poor. And then in the face of that, they're cutting the top marginal rate. I don't see why they're doing it. Also, you know, when Marco Rubio asked for an expansion of the child tax credit, which would help the working poor, literally go to the forgotten people that the president uh, pledged his presidency to, they said, no, no, the the, the corporate rate's got to stay at 20. Got to stay. Can't can't go a hair above that. And then in order to drop the top marginal rate, they've bumped it up to 21. So you have a, a direct, I mean, it's not just that they're that they're embracing the critique that this is a benefit to the wealthy over those lower down the income scale but they then have a specific instance in which changing it to help the working poor was not good enough but changing it to help the very wealthy was worth changing that corporate tax rate it just i don't get i don't get that so i want to make the obvious point because i have to make it every time we talk about this tax bill first this is not tax reform which was what we were originally offered or promised. It is quite the reverse. It is being passed in haste. 
So there will be tons of errors and loopholes in this bill, loopholes that will be exploited, errors that will cause unforeseen impacts and new complexity in the tax code. The tax code is not becoming simpler. It is becoming more complex and possibly riven, ridden with new forms of error and mistake and opportunities for exploitation by canny tax lawyers. Second, as John just pointed out, this is in no sense a huge middle class tax cut. The overwhelming majority of benefits go to the richest Americans in the form of estate tax gains, corporate profit gains, lower marginal income tax rates, uh, pass through benefits for people who have passed through businesses. So, Emily, given that, will the bill be a political dog or not? I mean, this is the choice. The choice is between the headlines that say Republicans fail again, their donors give up on them, and they have their most ardent supporters say, I don't know why the hell we elected those bums. I turn my backs on them. That's like one set of Christmas New Year's headlines. And the other set are tax bill passes, has a lot of ugliness in it, doesn't look like the middle class really got anything. Gee, if you live in a blue state, you're really screwed. Let me just complain for a moment as a blue state taxpayer how bad this tax bill is going to be for my state. It's going to suck. It's going to mean that people are paying higher taxes and that the state's budget crisis, which is severe in Connecticut, is going to probably be worsened. So there's a lot to complain about, and there'll be fallout in the way there is for any major piece of legislation, and it will go on for a long time. And so it seems to me that it's a matter of preventing a big short-term blow of failure, but inviting this like piece of unpopular legislation that then Democrats get to hang around the necks of Republicans in 2018. Do you, John, do you think that this is successfully neck-hangable? Is this the albatross that they will wear on a chain? I, my just to tip my hand, I don't think it's going to be a big voting issue. I don't think people will have felt. I don't think people are going to feel significant benefits from it. But nor do I think people are going to feel massive costs from it. And I don't think that even though the polling shows that support is very low for the bill, only thirty-two percent support for it. Uh, I don't think that necessarily translates into significant electoral gain for Democrats. Um, I think that's probably right. And to the extent that the left is not outraged about this on a long term basis, the way the right was by the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, in all the problems of health care that people didn't like, whether the Affordable Care Act had anything to do with it or not, people kind of put into their animus towards Democrats and, and President Obama. They also didn't like the sort of big government feel I think in this case, while there this animates underlying and traditional complaints Democrats have about Republicans fully and 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 in new and exciting ways, I think at the end of the day at the 2018 elections will be about those the stronger value rejection Democratic voters have and maybe voters more broadly have um, about this president. So this might be a part of that, but I think it will be overwhelmed by all the new things the president does to um to cause voters to be uh, to be outraged and work against them. If you look at the generic ballot now, when you ask people, just would you are you going to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? I believe that the the numbers now have Democrats ahead by in the low teens. That's really with a president whose approval rating is in the low thirties. To have the generic in the low teens, that's really uh, not good news for Republicans. 
And that's with a, a, a humming economy also. Right. The- One thing, though, about the tax bill, just to pop in a moment about the politics of this, it does really give the lie to the populist promise of the Trump presidency for all the reasons we were just talking about, especially given the choice between the um, Rubio Lee tax relief for the child tax credit versus this lowering of the marginal top rate. And the mar- lowering of the marginal top rate is exactly supply-side trickle-down economics, right? It's not even like, oh, it's going to be different this time because it's corporations getting the tax cut. It is simply for the richest people. Yeah. The, the, no, that's... The, the, the middle-class tax cut, the, you know, right. So there's... And the, the child tax credit is not the only thing they could have done. I mean, there's expansion of the ITC to childless for couples. Sure. Um, they could have changed the rates for middle class. So there's a lot of things they could have done if they wanted to take the money available that they're spending here and and channel it directly so that everybody in the middle class, everybody in the class of people, the 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 president referred to as the forgotten men and women, that everybody would get something. The way the theory now works is that they will get something. It won't be an overwhelming amount and it'll taper off, but then then they will get this benefit from increased jobs and plants and equipment and all that. Well, so obviously there's a lot of debate about whether that will actually happen and if corporations will do that. But let's imagine even that they do, you've got to work for the right corporation and in the right place for it to be a broadly shared benefit to the middle class. So that's the big difference. And also when you're spending money on plants and equipment, you know there are a lot of economists who believe that, that that's not yeah, the plants and equipment they're going to spend their money on is going to be robots and not new employees. It is It is amazing how this has revealed, although I suppose we already knew this, but it's amazing how it has revealed that the Republican Party has one basic idea, which is that we want to offer tax cuts for rich people. Even when it goes against economic principles they've espoused for years, even when it goes against the interests of the people who voted for them, even when it goes against the very thing the president at the top of their party espouses. It's a kind of extraordinary how dominant this single idea is. And it's also extraordinary how corrupting it is for for intellectual integrity. It is very disappointing to me how intellectually dishonest the arguments in favor of this bill have been. There hasn't, there's not a single genuinely uh, a genuine economist of any note who thinks this will not bust the budget, who thinks it will lower the deficit. Steve Mnuchin, the secretary of the treasury has relied on an absolutely laughable pipe dream growth projections to justify, justify uh, supporting this bill. There's, and he's being investigated because he claimed to have an analysis that the treasury uh, department never performed. Yeah. There's, there's no price though that, is being paid for this nonsense economics. And it's really just disappointing. We do, this is not a moment when the country needs a huge tax cut. And, and to do this and to do it in the way they're doing it is weird and sad. And it's going to come through riddled with errors because of the way it's being drafted. Errors that will be billions of dollars in someone's favor or, or cost someone billions of dollars. And it doesn't have to be this way. It's so frustrating. Can I ask a question about the end of the Obamacare mandate? So in previous versions of health care reform, which did not pass, voters seemed quite exercised about the notion of millions of people losing their health care insurance. It seems entirely possible and likely that that is going to happen from the end of the mandate. It may not be 13 million um, the way CBO projected, but it seems like it's going to be a lot of people and that it undermines the structure of the health care bill. 
if that takes place and we see people getting kicked off the rolls and we see premium pricing go up as you know we go into the kind of uh, spiral that happens when the insurance pool shrinks and healthy people leave, the people who you know were probably pushed into buying healthcare because of the mandate. Like, does that have a political effect that we think we will see? Uh, it depends how much. Um you know, that gets into the public's consciousness. You see at the moment the point you you led with, which was that the, the people who will be who will lose coverage um, or who will choose not to have coverage because they're not because there's no penalty for the mandate. You've seen that be less a part of the conversation here than it was at the time when healthcare was the only issue. So I think for Democratic voters, it will be pretty obvious. Um, and that's something that they um, because of its association with President Obama, that will be um I think that will be motivating for them. I think if you're a Republican, you still have to campaign on removing uh, uh, Obamacare. The interesting thing for me to watch is they're going to attach it in the Senate, at least the uh, Alexander Murray. That bill takes measures to, to strengthen the Affordable Care Act. And you have a lot of Republicans who don't want to take such measures because implicit in that is that the that the Affordable Care Act um, stays alive. Last question on this bill, John. Is there any chance that it doesn't get through? Is there any chance that that they don't actually have the votes in the Senate to get it through or that the whole California delegation bolts because of how state and local taxes are being treated? Or does the fact that they've announced this conference bill mean that it's locked up? I, I, there's probably a slim chance once we see the actual language and, and you know, there might be something funny in there. Uh, but I don't think so. I think it's going to go forward. Collins Flake, Rubio, I mean, even Rub even Marco Rubio, he sent a couple of tweets, but uh, nobody takes that seriously as a, um, or nobody I've talked to, I should say, takes that seriously as any threat to the actual bill. Susan Collins seems to be on board. So I, I think it's um, heading to be signed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What men are down this week? Starting to lose track of it. Mario Batali, the celebrity chef, accused of... Rampant sexual misconduct. Russell Simmons, the music mogul accused by three women of rape. Tavis Smiley of BET's program has been put on hold by PBS. There's another New York restaurateur, a big New York restaurateur who's been pilloried. New Yorker's chief political writer was forced out amid mysterious allegations. It's just crazy. But most notably this week was a resurfacing of the allegations against President Trump, three of his many accusers went on Megyn Kelly's show to talk about their experience with him. The Atlantic published an annotated list of the 19 different women who accused him of sexual misconduct. So there are two, I think, big questions that emerged this week, Emily. One is what is to be done about the allegations against the president, if anything? And two, where is this movement heading? So Let's start with the Trump accusations. They're super disturbing. I had forgotten them for the most part. I knew they were there, but I'd forgotten the specific specifics. But 
there are feeling. But when one gets dragged into the specifics, they're really yucky. They're really yucky. So they range from, you know, unforceable, unwanted kissing and grabbing and to walking in on pageant contestants naked, feeling women up breasts and, and through their underwear. And Trump's response has been essentially these are all lies. So. Well, also, he said he didn't know the women, which wasn't true, since we have pictures of him with some of them. Yes, that is also true. Although, so, you know, it's it, just one little thing. This is not this is not to excuse that. But he he has a very interesting um, tick that he has about any criticism, not just in this instance, but all, is that he often says about people he's met that I don't know them. They don't know me. In other words, as if they have no standing to make the claim. But there's the, the, the standing is the, the depth of knowledge is irrespective of standing. But it's but this is something this is a, a thing that he does in a lot of different other circumstances. Because he's I would a liar. say that that makes it more rather than less disturbing. But yeah, yes, that's why right, I started by saying this doesn't excuse him. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for fear of that rebuttal. So, em- gotcha, gotcha. Emily, what is to be done? What is to be done? Well, I mean, Senator Gillibrand called for hearings this week. It's hard to imagine that that will actually happen. It was really interesting that Nikki Haley talked about how these women should be heard. They are being heard. Some of them went on Megyn Kelly's show this week. I think we're going to have another round of media coverage, and we already are having that. But it is really difficult to figure out how um, there could be some actual consequence. So then you have this contradiction we all keep noticing, which is that other men around the country are losing their jobs and getting in big trouble for less egregious conduct than the president is credibly accused of. I mean, obviously, Al Franken, we should note, he resigned, I think, after we taped our last show, like right after. And he said, I note that I'm leaving Um even though I deny some of these accusations against me and uh, the president is accused of much worse. So anyway, so we have this contradiction of men around the country losing their jobs. Some of the allegations against them are less serious, and there certainly are fewer women involved than um, the accusations against President Trump, whose job does not look at all in jeopardy. Almost everyone else has a boss. They have a board. They they have shareholders. There's some clear institutional mechanism for removing them from their position. The president, there is a mechanism for removing him from his position, which is impeachment. But it's not, it's very different to impeach the president than it is to, to fire the CEO of a company. One is uh, disruptive for shareholders. The other is is a monumental disruption for the the nation and the world. So, given that, given that they're given democratic by by nature, right? right. So, given that there isn't, there doesn't appear to be a clear, obvious, natural mechanism for doing anything about it. Therefore, should nothing be done about it? It's kind of what where I've come down. It's is that it's good to publicize it. It's good to talk about it. I don't know that there's any gain to get from congressional investigations. And there's nothing to be done. And so to hope that something can be done is hopeless. Um, Emily, what do you make of uh, Trey Gowdy's argument in dismissing calls that he should uh, look into this said, 
this is a criminal matter and should be brought up in um, uh, in the criminal courts. I mean, obviously, that can be seen as buck passing. But is there a what did well, what did you make of that? I mean, I think it would be very hard to bring criminal charges against President Trump at this point for these allegations. They are like, you know, misdemeanor assault in the third degree or this. It's just they're they're not the kind of allegations that many years later people are normally prosecuted for. Right. And they're also not they're beyond the statute of limitations in almost every case, I think. Am I right about Probably. that? Probably. Yeah. I mean, look, Harvey Weinstein still hasn't been prosecuted. And there are very credible rape allegations against him in numeral st- cities and states. So the notion that Trump is going to be prosecuted but, seems yes. But I think like, Trey Gowdy doesn't want to deal with this. But also, I don't think that Gowdy is right, is wrong to say this isn't the job of Congress. Congress's job is to investigate and have oversight over what the government does and and to be a check on the executive branch. None of this has anything to do with allegations about misbehavior by the president as president. And none of it has to do right. with, um, with, you know, him being uh, what, what he's done in office or, or ha- has any policy implications. And so it's disturbing and disgusting and wrong. And he's a, he's a lecherous, disgusting, predatory creep which we knew when he was elected. But I don't therefore think that the government has any work to do to uh, try to accomplish anything about that. Right. It does seem really important, obviously, that the voters knew about this before they elected him. One thing that's been striking to me is listening again to the Access Hollywood tape to what Trump said um, to Billy Bush that day in the wake of all of this wave of topplings and the Me Too movement, it sounds worse to me. I mean, it didn't sound good at the time, but I actually was shocked to hear it again. Um, it just is so predatory. You're right. But uh, David's point is hard to assail. We do have this lawsuit against the president for defamation brought by one of the women. So it'll be interesting to see if that goes far enough to get some discovery. Do you think that'll... So is that like, Emily, the Paula Jones case where essentially they put it off saying that this... You can't sue a president because it gets in the way of his duties. And then Bill Clinton had to pay $850,000. Does that... Is that a model for what's happening here? Yeah. And in fact, the Supreme Court said that that suit could go forward. I mean, that you know, this idea that like the president can't be distracted, the Supreme Court rejected that logic. And so, yes, that suit should go forward based on the same reasoning. And it will be interesting to see if a similar settlement ensues or if this plaintiff, like I said, gets some information in the discovery process. Let's turn just to the other part of this, which is the <laughs> this week in, in uh, Awful Men. Emily, do you get the sense that this movement uh, is just going to continue kind of as is forever? Are we going to, is it going to end in a moment? Is it going to end with a false accusation and people will suddenly, people will suddenly uh, be full of doubt and, and, and now men will be again allowed to get away with whatever they want to get away with because there was one false accusation. What, what do you think is likely to, to happen? How is this going to unfold? Well, I think the really interesting question is, how could the workplace change? What would it take? What do women really want from the workplace that is not true now? And will men be scared enough to change their behavior, right? I mean, that 
it looks like for the first time, there are real consequences for lots of people who didn't expect to face those consequences. And so other men and boys growing up seeing that could think that they were really going to pay a price in a way that they didn't before. Um, I mean, this is something that we've seen a little bit with the um, movement against campus sexual assault that, you know, boys in high school, at least my kids, have a much more uh, robust sense of risk to them than I think that certainly like the boys and men I grew up with had. So that I think is really interesting. And then I also wonder if, you know, women are radicalized in a way that will make people call out bad behavior and refuse to sort of go along with it in a way that we just didn't see in previous generations. And One thing I find myself like in some ways all over the map on this issue, I've gotten really concerned about due process in some of these cases. You know, the fact that all those senators called for Al Franken to resign before there was any kind of ethics investigation. That worried me. On the other hand, when Franken did go ahead and resign, that meant that, like, I mean, what were we supposed to make of that? That his position really in the Senate was untenable or that he was trying to stave off what we would have found out? I mean, he denied some of the allegations, but that was confusing. And I don't like the idea of due process kind of going entirely by the wayside in all of this. But on the other hand, I do think that, like, it is the moment for a reckoning and that there are a lot of things about the workplace that don't succeed for women. And it is a big relief to see all of that aired and taken seriously in a way that, like, just has not happened before. I think the closest thing I can think on this is is the movement against drunk driving. We're in a very rapid moment uh, because of I mean, it was a different source. In this case, it was a source of, of mothers. It was mad. Mothers against drunk driving. Right, right. Drunk driving went from being basically socially acceptable, acceptable. to being completely socially unacceptable. Not that it never happens anymore. It certainly happens a lot. But it, 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 the rates went down precipitously, and it, it was socially stigmatized in a wonderful way. And I think that we're probably having that moment with with sexual misconduct in the workplace. I, well, that's a really positive analogy because drunk driving fatalities also went way down. Right. I think the interesting border, I think the 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 interesting location of where ambiguity is going to be is is the consensual relationship with a person who is your junior in the workplace. And that's where people's uncertainty is. Almost every bit of of uh what we've learned so far has been really grotesque predatory behavior that no one can excuse. But I think where there, where there's, where people are unsure is, is, you know, if, if somebody uh, has a, has an affair with somebody who is works for them or is their junior, is that, is that now totally unacceptable? And that's, that's one place where I think people don't have an answer that they have an answer about Harvey Weinstein. They have an answer about, you know, groping people. They don't necessarily have an answer about that. Right. So Alison Benedict, who's a colleague of ours at Slate, wrote, I thought, a really thoughtful piece about office flirtation. And she was talking about her relationship with her husband, which started as an office flirtation when he was like essentially her supervisor, had some kind of supervisory authority over her. And of course, like they've been married for years and she's glad that he expressed his interest in her. I got to the end of this piece and I, like I said, I can like find something to sympathize with in basically every viewpoint um, that women are expressing right now. But I did wonder, okay, so 
Is it really true that we are risking a world in which men don't make passes? Or is it just that, like, they would be more careful and that if you're the supervisor of a woman you're interested in, you would really, really make sure that she wanted you to kiss her before you tried? And, like, how terrible would that really be? What do you guys think about that? I don't think it would be that terrible for us to have to really give up the idea in most cases that there can be good consensual relationships among people working together in an office of different rank. That is a thing which in individual cases is really nice. And we can all think of great examples of people who met their spouse because one of them was supervising the other. And those are lovely, but they're, but it is somewhat problematic. And so if we can make those at least slightly more difficult, slightly more cumbersome, uh, make there be put that put sort of official barriers in the way of it. That's probably to the good in the long run. Right, it's like proceed with caution, essentially. And I guess I assume that the human nature and people's interest in romance and sex and their desire will surmount, right? And that they're not going to like not find each other. But I don't know. Maybe there are people who feel like that's not that that is a real risk. Well, workplaces are great. Because you're working, you tend to work with people. You spend a lot of time with them. You see them accomplishing things that often at their best selves. It would. It's a shame to to fully give that up as a yes. source of romance and potential potential marriage. But here's another thing I've been wrestling with. Some of these men, I feel like, deserve some sanction, but not to be fired. And I can't decide, like, if the rank humiliation of being on this list is enough in itself or kind of what to do with people who are there are there are a few of them in public radio so for example tom ashbrook who's the host of um on point was accused of giving unwanted hugs and back rubs to women in his office like maybe there will be more to those allegations i don't know but if you just take that on its face that seems to me like okay he should stop like he should not make women uncomfortable in his office for sure but i don't think i like he should be fired for that that just seems like the kind of insensitive behavior that you could get someone to desist from without necessarily making them lose their job and i'm starting to wonder about that middle ground there are people who are being uh, who are under investigation and kind of suspended or not at work while they're being investigated. But, you know, what happens when those investigations are over? Do some of them get to come back? And, like, uh, can we figure out some kind of interim sanction here so that we're not talking about, like, lifetime banishment for every single man who's accused of doing something untoward? I do wonder, Hannah and I were talking about this this morning, whether there's – going to be kind of a scarlet H for people, which will make them unemployable almost. I've hired, I, I've very successfully and with great glee and delight hired people who had, who you know, who'd sinned, who'd committed Screwed sins. <laughs> and, and in every case, I have been totally thrilled by that hire, that these were people who were motivated to work really hard and and had you know they'd made mistakes they'd made honest mistakes and they could be they had paid for those mistakes they'd lost jobs they'd been humiliated and I was glad to have them and and in all cases turned out to be wonderful colleagues but I don't know I don't think I would hire such a person at this point the, forever though I, I don't mean, know right I don't now know. right like I feel like it's we can't 
I know that a lot of women feel very frustrated that um, attention is going into worrying about these men because obviously there have been women who've been <laughs> sidelined. Point. Very good right? point. No, really, like it's a it's a real concern. Yep. Like we have lost. Right. I like want to pay tribute to that. It is real. On the other hand, in a court of law, when you punish someone, you decide on their sentence at the outset. That's like part of due process. And everyone abides by that. And most of the time, we don't give people the death penalty or life in prison. We come up with other sorts of sanctions. In this case, in the court of public opinion, we don't have a very clear way of distinguishing between large and small infractions. I don't even think we agree about what those were. I mean, some people listening may think that, you know, unwanted hugs and back rubs are terrible. And it's so hard to know because you don't really get from like the words of the news account, the impact that the behavior had on women in the workplace and how much it caused people to leave or be sidelined or discriminated against. I find wrestling with all that very tricky because I sort of do want to make sure that there are like interim sanctions and that we know what they are up front. And yet there is like no real way to do that. And I do appreciate that what happens to these men is not like necessarily the primary concern right now. And now let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily Bazelon, when you're having a vodka and soda, which was the drink in the the New Yorker viral short story, Cat Person. <laughs> which we're not talking which about we're not today, talking even about. though I wanted to. Every other podcast in America has talked about it. What will you be chattering about with your vodka and soda? One of the fascinating things to me about the Trump administration is watching mainstream nonpartisan organizations perform, if not radical, at least uh, more assertive roles. And one of those organizations is the American Bar Association, which has declared a couple of Trump's judicial nominees unqualified. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes for Slate Plus. But the ABA did something else interesting this week. It sent a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions pointing out that of the 57 candidates for U.S. attorney that the Trump administration has so far announced, only one of them is African-American and only three are women. That does not reflect the composition of the country nor of the legal profession. It is still true that the profession is majority male and majority white, but it is not that skewed. And equal numbers of men and women are graduating from law school these days. So I just thought this was a kind of amazing document that the ABA would feel that um, these top prosecutor federal prosecutor positions in the country are so imbalanced that it would um, try to speak out and, uh, of course, reflects other aspects of the Trump administration in terms of how heavily white and male it is. And I wonder if there will be any response at all to this letter. That is demoralizing, although not, I suppose, entirely surprising given this administration, but it is demoralizing. John, what is your chatter? Uh, my chatter is just a recommendation that everybody go watch The Post when it comes out. Um, I got a chance to watch it in advance of uh, doing an interview about it for CBS this morning. And there are um, so it's a great story, obviously, about The Washington Post and the battle over um, to catch up with The New York Times, which broke broke the story of the um, Pentagon Papers. But there it's got Meryl Streep playing Catherine Graham. An amazing moment, particularly in the moment we're in now and the, a lot of the issues we're talking about, the Catherine Graham coming from being the widow of the former publisher of the Washington Post, uh, coming into her own at this important time for the Washington Post, um, 
there's that great story, that great piece of acting. Then you have Tom Hanks playing Ben Bradley, this kind of pirate editor, um, which is another great piece of acting and another interesting character in history in that time. But then the relationship between the two of them is also its own little storyline, which is just great. And there's a scene early on in the movie that I won't ruin, but it's a, it's such a great scene. And and a delicate like just of the small little tiny brush strokes of acting and and the pair between the two of them. So even if you weren't there for the great narrative and story about journalism during um you know and the and the systematic disinformation campaign from multiple administrations about Vietnam, there's just the straight up good acting. My chatter this week is about a wonderful bot project that was carried out by. Botnik.org. Botnik.org, which I don't quite understand, is an organization. It's a creative arts collective that uses computer algorithms and bots along with human intervention to create interesting creative projects. And what they did is they used what's called their predictive typewriter, which is something where there's a humans kind of start sentences and then computers finish them. And these computers have read all of Harry Potter to create a new Harry Potter chapter in a book titled Harry Potter and the Portrait of What Looked Like a Large Pile of Ash. This chapter <laughs> Wait, is so... Wait, where did the title come uh, from? That's it's, awesome. It's the bot. And the, 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 I love it. The chapter is so funny. It's so extremely funny. <laughs> it's just so every bit of... Yes, every bit of it is... The castle ground snarled with a wave of magically magnified wind. The sky outside was a great black ceiling, which was full of blood. The only sounds drifting from Hagrid's hut were the disdainful shrieks of his own furniture. Magic. It was something that Harry Potter thought was very good. What are the, let's see. Where the Death Eaters said these. Uh, let me find the, some of the good lines here. Voldemort, you're a very bad and mean wizard, Harry savagely said. Hermione nodded encouragingly. The tall Death Eater was wearing a shirt that said, Hermione has forgotten how to dance. So Hermione dipped his face in mud. It's just extremely <laughs> Dada. It's so Dada. The great hall was filled with incredible moaning chandeliers and a large librarian who had decorated the sinks with books about masonry. Mountains of mice exploded. Several long <laughs> pumpkins fell out of McGonagall. Dumbledore's hair scooted next to Hermione as Dumbledore arrived at school. Anyway, it just goes on and on <laughs> in this extremely fun. Dada way. It's delightful. I want to recommend the new Slate podcast, Slow Burn. It's a podcast about Watergate over eight episodes in a kind of mini series. And it tries to answer the question, what was it actually like to live through this evolving story as this crazy burglary in Watergate, this evolving scandal that went from a crazy burglary in the Watergate Hotel to bringing down President Nixon? Um, I listened to the first episode um, with great enjoyment. It's about Martha Mitchell, a character who t had been lost to history, at least to me, and who's one of those people who kind of enters the scene and is totally intriguing. And you get very caught up in exactly how she factored into Watergate. And it's then amazing that you've never heard of her before. Um, and I thought Leanne Nafak, who is a terrific Slate reporter, was a great storyteller. So I recommend the show. Our show is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest, the good Twitter feed, and it will keep you up to date on things. For 
Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm, I, I am. Who am I? Let me think for a second. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.